Good morning. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, we ask you to come now and speak truth to our hearts. Uh, with all the voices that we would hear yours. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. For its word of the year for 2016, the Oxford English Dictionary chose the hyphenated word post-truth. And by that they mean relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective truth is less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. Now, has anyone, anyone ever said to you, truth is in the eye of the beholder? Or truth is relative? Or, well, that's true for you, but not for me. Or, my perception is my reality. Your perception is your reality. Anybody ever had somebody say something like that to them? Jesus said, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And then, of course, Pilate responded, what is truth? It all comes down to Jesus. Today we're starting a new series on the book of Psalms. There are 150 Psalms. We're not going to go through them all. We're going to do about nine. Um, the most fam- some of the most famous ones. And most Sundays like today, I'm going to try and kind of cover the whole psalm, but that won't work out as well sometimes. And we'll pick you know, some key concepts and hopefully give you something to apply in your life. Why would you want to apply principles from the psalms to your life today? They were written thousands of years ago. We now know so much more than the people who wrote the psalms. And, and they were so primitive. Won't we be ridiculed and rejected if we actually lived in the way that the Psalms tell us to. Isn't life better if you just kind of do what you feel is right or okay as long as you don't hurt anybody? Well, you all know I don't feel that way. And it really all comes down to Jesus. Jesus quotes the Psalms and other parts of the Hebrew Scriptures that we call the Old Testament, and he treats them as true and reliable. He bears witness to the truth. He bears witness that they are true, even though by then they're many centuries old. He says specifically about a quote from Psalms, the scripture cannot be broken. It's one of the strongest statements of self-authorization in the entire Bible. Jesus saying the scripture cannot be broken. He uses the Old Testament to resist the devil. He uses it to explain who he is. And after the resurrection, he's walking along with a couple of disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he kind of goes through the whole Hebrew Scriptures showing how they refer to him. Now, I believe that Jesus is God in the flesh. I believe it because of the overwhelming historical evidence for the resurrection. I believe it because the Holy Spirit has talked to me and, and convinced my heart. I believe it because of what God has done in my life since I turned it over to Him. I believe it because of what God has done down through history in many lives and the miracles I've seen and all of these things. Jesus made it clear that the Old Testament is reliable. I believe Jesus is God because He knows what He's talking about. In addition to the Old Testament, He delegated to His disciples to kind of flesh things out and explain them for us. 
they recorded enough for us in their writings that God has that God both inspired and has preserved. And so the reliable writings grouped together, and we call that the New Testament. So I'm convinced that the entire Bible is reliable, trustworthy, true. It helps us to understand reality, even though it's often painful and often confusing. I've had a bunch of confusing stuff going on in my life lately. It's a fallen world. And the principles, even of something like the Psalms written thousands of years ago, still apply because actually people haven't changed that much. And God knew that. God created us, and He gives us those principles. And there's one other thing I'd like to say, that in addition to all of this, which, which many, many followers of Jesus believe what I just told you, I believe that when it comes to the worldview presented in the Bible about a loving God and a sinful humanity and the need for a Savior and all of these things and, and Jesus rescuing us, I believe that the Bible is internally consistent in its logic and explanation of reality. And I am actually convinced that there is no other worldview that is internally consistent. So I'm left with this. Either God has told us about reality in the Bible and has explained why everything, absolutely everything we do, is meaningful and full of importance and purpose. Or, if that's not true, I am convinced that everything is meaningless. Now, if, every, if everything is meaningless, then there is ultimately no right or wrong, no good or evil, no matter what you think. If the Bible is not true and everything is meaningless, then logically it is neither good nor bad to love your neighbor or to kill your neighbor, to serve your neighbor lunch or to serve your neighbor for lunch. And I know that's harsh, but I believe it's literally true. And if the Bible is not reliable, and I think I've come to the conclusion that perhaps for our society, this is one of the most, if people will look deeply at it, it's one of the most convincing arguments for the God who reveals himself in the Bible being the true God. That if the Bible is not reliable, then there is no transcendent meaning to life. If the Bible is not trustworthy, then I am convinced that the love you feel for your family, for your mother, for your children, for your grandchildren, for somebody else, it is merely a chemical reaction in your brain. It's neither good nor bad. But you know that that's not true, don't you? You know that the love you feel is transcendent. You Something has told you it's transcendent. The Apostle John, in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, says that there is a light that enlightens every person. God enlightening you, enlightening you about many things, one of which is the love you feel, it's not merely chemical reaction. It is truly meaningful. It is truly transcendent. And that should convince you that there is a loving, good God who makes love meaningful and transcendent. And if you dig deeper, the only God around that fits the bill for that is the God who reveals himself in the Bible. So after decades of following Jesus and studying the Bible and books about the Bible and other religions, I am more convinced than ever that this is true, trustworthy, reliable. But we live in a post-truth society. The worldview of more and more people 
in our societies that you cannot know the truth about God or about good or evil or about, about morality. So just do what you feel like as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. They believe you can only know things if science has proved them to their satisfaction. The brilliant Dallas Willard says, there is knowledge of God and the spiritual nature of man as well as other types of reality, for example, moral obligations, that are not reducible to the world dealt with by the so-called natural sciences. The idea that knowledge and, of course, reality is limited to that world is the single most destructive idea on the stage of life today. Now, now if you're here and you are not convinced that the Bible is reliable, I'm really glad you're here. Welcome. Uh, I hope we can just love you and treat you really well. But if during this series you will actually put into practice some of the principles we'll see in the book of Psalms, I believe that God will use it. Um, you'll experience the power of those principles and the impact, and that may actually make you want to dig a little deeper and actually consider that perhaps the Bible is God's reliable message to us. But most of you, I think, are probably here because you already believe that the Bible is reliable. But you've not been putting the principles in the Bible into practice. And when you do that, you are undermining and weakening your trust in God. And when the storms of life come, and they will, you will be more likely to falter and perhaps even desert Jesus. I, I like to periodically show you this diagram. Not that one, that one. Um, you see, we often in our culture, we think we just need to know it in our head, and then that will we'll be good to go. That's just not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that we need to put the principles we know in our head into practice with our hands, and that that will be used by the Holy Spirit to transform our hearts. That when we don't put it into practice, it actually undermines us. We'll be transformed, we'll become more like Jesus more rapidly when we actually put into practice the principles. And this is, this is not anything about earning your salvation. There's so many people that like to throw that up and think that, oh, you don't have to do what the Bible says. Yeah, you do. Not to earn salvation. Once you've received salvation as a gift that you could never earn, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside you. And He begins working to change your heart and make you more like Jesus, more loving, more patient, more trusting, less worried. Uh, more self-control. And when you put into practice the principles God has given us in the Bible, the Holy Spirit adds His supernatural power into that. And you are transformed more rapidly than you would be if you did not. Often people who resist the Holy Spirit say, well, I'm not going to do what Psalm 1 says. I'm not going to delight in the law and, and uh, meditate on it. What, they ha- what happens when you resist what the Holy Spirit is telling you to do in the Scriptures, you often can become plateaued and get stuck. You don't put God's principles into practice using your own power in order to receive salvation. You put God's principles into practice with the power of the Holy Spirit because you have already received salvation and you love Jesus and you want to obey Him and become more like Him. So how does what you do either reinforce or undermine your belief in God and the principles He tells us about in the Bible? The Apostle James writes, be doers of the word and not hearers only. If you were to, for example, the Bible, Jesus says, you have to forgive people from your heart or you won't be forgiven. 
And so if you put that into practice and really cooperate with the Holy Spirit and forgive people, you will find that you will become more gracious. You'll become more humble. You'll become quicker at forgiving people. If you don't, then it becomes a principle that you know deep down inside you're not, you're not trying to walk with the Holy Spirit on that one. And you may then either become feeling guilty or be, maybe because of your pride, and you will probably be motivated to say something like, well, you don't really have to forgive people from your heart. I have literally heard bitter people say that. That's just one example. There's some really typical examples in our society today. Examples that many churches, principles, many churchgoers aren't putting into practice, even though they'll say, I believe the Bible is a reliable message from God. Things like being quick to hear and slow to speak. Do you talk too much? Things like being slow to anger. Do you have a problem in your anger? Trusting God and not worrying. Do you worry? I worry. I'm working about it. I'm a little worried about my worry. Things like, do not imagine sex with someone who is not your spouse. Love and pray for the people who treat you like enemies. Be generous so that you store up treasure in heaven. Tell people about what Jesus has done for you because without him, the Bible says they'll perish. When was the last time you told somebody what Jesus has done for you? It's not enough to merely understand that God wants you to put these into practice, the principles that we'll be studying in, in class. Jesus said, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. But we live in a post-truth society. The worldview of more and more people in our society is that you cannot know the truth about God or good or bad or morality, so just do what you feel like as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. But the worldview of the Bible of this congregation is different. We believe that the Bible is reliable, that it's true, that in it God has given us reliable truths and principles that stand the test of time. Even when we don't like them, even when we don't fully understand them, and just remember, whenever you're feeling like, oh, well, we're beyond that now, every epoch, every society, every culture throughout history has had some things in the Bible, some principles that it really just didn't like or didn't fully understand. Life is no exception. Expect it. We should expect our culture to disagree with us and to not like us. And since they don't agree that they're supposed to love their enemies and they feel like we're their enemies, we should expect them to, expect them to be nice to us or to treat us fairly. The Apostle Paul wrote that all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted especially if we live out the principles God has given us in the Bible. See, if, we, if you decide, if you choose to follow Jesus, you will be persecuted. If you choose to follow Jesus, you won't blend in. You'll be different. If you choose to follow Jesus, you will be devoted to doing something, spending your time in ways that other people don't do, and you will be devoted to not joining them in some of the things that they do. And if you follow Jesus, you will see great value in studying God's Word and great value and putting its principles into practice. See, it's not a small thing to choose to follow Jesus. It sets you apart from others. It sets you up for ridicule. I read a, a great article about the, our post-truth society this week. In it, a guy named Vince Vitale, who works with Ravi Zacharias, if you know that name, uh, he, he writes the following. I'll quote it. 
I was walking around Oxford University a few months ago, and two guys walking just ahead of me were having a spirited conversation about how crazy they found certain Christian positions on ethical issues. One of them wondered out loud whether the only solution would be to shame Christians out of their positions. His friend quickly responded, Yeah, that's what we should do. We should ridicule them mercilessly in the most insensitive ways we can think of. That's an exact quote. Then they both made a right turn, wiped their faculty cards, and entered the University of Oxford theoretical physics building. That got some laughs at the first day. Um, These were probably scholars at Oxford, a place that prides itself on intellectual freedom and the exchange of ideas. And merciless, insensitive ridicule was the best they could come up with for resolving disagreements. I found myself wondering how many beliefs they hold in theoretical physics that one day will be considered ridiculous. Okay, that's why we're studying Psalms today. Even though they were written thousands of years ago. Do you you want to follow Jesus? Are you willing to experience merciless, insensitive ridicule? Okay, then open up your Bible to Psalm 1. It's on page 448. And if you are here kind of checking Jesus out, you are not yet convinced that Jesus is God, you've not decided to follow him, you can also open to Psalm 1. We will not take that as a commitment on your part to experience merciless and sensitive ridicule. You're just checking Jesus out. You're doing a reasonable thing. I'd urge you to kind of just keep that open the rest of the message. Psalm 1. Blesses the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Wicked. Sinners. Scoffers. Now, before we think that's just somebody else, remember when Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, well, what man of you is if the son asks for bread, will give him a stone, or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good things to those who ask you? Jesus is saying, well, this is kind of like follow me 101. Uh, you're evil. Okay? And Paul, in the book of Romans, comes to that conclusion. He says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So according to God's word, we're all wicked. We're all sinners. So we never have room to think we're better than someone. We'll, we'll come back to how we deal with that in this psalm. Verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Martin Luther said that there are multiple purposes to the law of God, speaking primarily of the Ten Commandments. Um, the first purpose of the law of God is to convince us that we need a Savior because we just don't match up. Because we are, like Paul said in, in Romans, and we're all, we're, we've all sinned and we fall short. But that's not the only purpose of the law of God. Have you ever thought that, realize that the law of God is not arbitrary? It actually flows right out of the character, the heart of God. So when God says, do not commit adultery, it's because he's faithful. When he says, do not bear false witness, it's because he's truthful. Okay? So another purpose of the law is it reveals God to us. This is the character of God. Faithful, truthful, many other things. There's another purpose to God's moral code. Once we've turned our life over to Jesus and been filled with the Holy Spirit, God's moral code tells us how to love our neighbor well, how to love God well. So we're guided by God's principles, by God's law, 
because we want to become more like Jesus and love people well. We don't do it on our own power. We can't. We need the power of the Spirit. And we're never perfect in this life, but we do find that we gradually get better. It is primarily this third purpose of the law, to be guided by God's principles, that will be our focus in this series on the book of Psalms. The term, the law, in the Old Testament and the New, uh, can mean several different things. For example, it can mean just the Ten Commandments. Or it can mean kind of the first five books of the Bible. Or it can mean all of God's uh, written word, the Hebrew Scriptures. I think for our purposes in Psalm 1 and most of the series on the, on the Psalms, we're going to find it most helpful just to think of the law of the Lord as all of God's written revelation, what we generally call God's word. And so for us, that would include the New Testament. And there's also a sense in which Jesus himself, because he, he is the living word, he is the fullest revelation of the character of God that we have received so far. He's also the Word. So when, when I'm thinking of, as it says here, to meditate on God's law, I think of meditating on all of God's Word, including what I know about Jesus, the living Word. Now, in this chapter, the author is contrasting being influenced by evil with being influenced by God's Word. He mentions three ways we are influenced by evil. Look again at that first verse. By walking in the counsel of the wicked. Now again, we're all wicked, and only Jesus is perfect and sinless. So we have no room for pride, uh, no room to ever look down on people. However, our allegiance is to God, to Jesus as our King. We're flawed, we're broken. The inner transformation of becoming like Jesus is an ongoing process. However, in the context of Psalm 1, the wicked, the sinners, the scoffers, are referring to people who have no allegiance to God. Do you see the difference? There's no allegiance to God. And so what, what we ask ourselves as we read this is, do I walk in the counsel of the wicked? Who shapes my opinion about right and wrong, wisdom and foolishness? Do I even recognize what's going on? Am I letting the people who don't even believe that God has given us a reliable written word, are they primarily influencing me? In the Garden of Eden, you remember what the serpent's question was to Eve? Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, he knew that wasn't correct. That's not what God said. And Eve corrects him and says, no, no, not, we can eat of all the fruit, just not the one in the midst of the, the garden. If we eat it, we'll die. And then the serpent says, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God knowing good and evil. See, this is what the counsel of the wicked does. It tries us to, to get us to doubt the goodness of God. People say things like, it's totally unrealistic for you to go without sex until you're married. Or, God didn't actually say that. People said that. You can't rely on that. Or, Jesus can't be the only way. That would be exclusive and God would not do that. Or, the Bible, in the Bible, God kills people. A loving God wouldn't kill people. Today, our post-truth culture is telling us that God has not said, telling us that we cannot know God or right or wrong, telling us why what we think God said is not true. Well, what does it mean to stand in the way of sinners? Now, it's not what we would say. Stand in His way, block Him, stop Him from sin. That's not the point at all. Um, one of the ways that we stand in the way of sinners, this isn't all the ways, but one of them is 
it. We will go into where we know they're going to be so that we put ourselves in a position to be tempted by them. In uh, Proverbs 7, King Solomon writes, um, For at the window of my house I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the rude, a young man without sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. See, the young man is deliberately going where he knows a woman will find him and try to seduce him. And that's what happens through the rest of that proverb. But one manner in which we stand in the way of sinners is we kind of put ourselves where we know the temptation will come. We know that people will try to seduce us into doing something God wouldn't want us to do. Maybe it's just spending too much time or too much money on something. Maybe it's being with people who... who we know are going to tempt us to badmouth and complain. Maybe it's drinking too much. There are all these different ways in which we can stand in a place where we'll be tempted. So what does it mean to sit in the seat of scoffers? What do scoffers do? They ridicule other people. They roll their eyes. They act as if the people that disagree with them are stupid. Scoffing comes from a deep disrespect for others. Rather than patiently trying to understand someone and be gracious, Scoffers let their disdain show that their words, tone of voice, or facial expressions are all true. Now, not too long ago, I was watching one of our most popular news stations in this country. It's news, just news. I'm not going to name it. I'm not name it. And um, the host was sitting in the middle and had about 20 people around him for this dialogue that was going to go on. And they were, they were talking about some controversial issue. I'm not, I don't remember what it was. And, you know, he started off talking to various people and um, they kind of stated how they were in favor of this particular issue in the same way that, that they, they believed about this issue, like most, most of our post-truth culture does. And then he called on this guy that was a Christian and asked him what he thought. And I think he was the only one there. And very respectfully and thoughtfully, um, the Christian started to state his case for why he believed differently than the others. But he only succeeded in getting a couple of sentences out. And as soon as the host saw where he was going, the host started ridiculing him and talking over him. And the rest of the crowd joined in and they spoke with disdain and anger and pride. It was exactly like what the two scholars at Oxford had predicted. Do you sit in the seat of scoffers? When someone does not share your point of view, how do you respond? I know a lot of followers of Jesus who speak derisively about people. It's not to their face in their, in their absence. It's not in their absence in their hearts when it shows on their face. In your heart, do you scoff at people who aren't followers of Jesus? Do you scoff at people who are flawed followers of Jesus? Whenever I'm tempted to be proud or disdainful or to scoff, I remind myself, it actually took the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit to convince me that God's word can be trusted. To get me to repent and turn my life over to Jesus. And even after all these decades of my allegiance being with Christ, I still struggle with some things. Not the same things I struggled with initially, but some really silly things. So I'm in no condition to condemn anyone or hold them in disdain or be proud. They may struggle with that, but I struggle.
Jesus. Do you ever speak like a scoffer to anyone in your family? The way you look? Do you roll your eyes? Does your face show? So what does it mean to delight in the law of the Lord? It means you actually get a great deal of joy learning from God's Word. You may have difficult seasons where that's not as true, the desert seasons, but in general, one of the things the Holy Spirit does when He comes into our life is He increases our joy, our delight in God's Word. What does it mean to meditate on God's Word day and night? The word for meditate is the word, same uh, root word for ruminate. It's like a cow. You know, they, they chew the grass and then they comes back up, they chew it again, they chew the cut over and over. That's what the word comes from. That we're to go over and over God's word and extract all of the spiritual nutrition we can find from it. Meditating on God's word day and night means that throughout our day, during our evening, at night when we wake up, we are thinking about God and His Word. That we're ruminating. You may read it in your paper Bible. You may use your phone and read it on that. You may have cards. This is this is my Psalm one. Because when I when I hike I try to help my failing brain remember things that I've I've memorized in the past. You may listen to an audio version as you drive. And if you do, one of the things I recommend is instead of just going straight through the New Testament, pick a book and do it 20 or 30 times, like the book of Galatians. You'll be amazed what you'll learn and what you'll remember. You all know I highly recommend that you memorize as much Scripture as you can. Then you can think about it when you're standing in line or waiting in traffic or falling asleep or wake up in the middle of the night. And I actually think that it changes the way your brain functions for the good. Verse 3. Here's the promise. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. That doesn't mean you're always as fruitful as you'd like to be. I'm not feeling as fruitful as I'd like to be right now. There are seasons. Yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. Now, I, I hike in Garland Park sometimes, and so next time you are hiking, you go get up high. If you can look down on the river or a stream or even just a gully, you'll see that uh, except for in the, in the winter when you know everything's sparse, but other times of year you'll see that the, the biggest trees, the most flourishing trees, they're the ones by the watershed sometimes. They're the most, they're the most fruitful ones, the ones that get water. They're, this is a picture of, of the tree in my front yard, and I know it's kind of hard to see, but I think it's dead. Um, it had, when, I, when I moved in 12 years ago, I think it had three brothers and sisters that have long ago gone away, I think it is too, because it doesn't get any water. You know that in the California forest, there are now tons and tons of dead trees that are hazardous uh, because of the drought that we've had that took those in under the setting coastline. If you will delight in God's revelation and meditate on Scripture, you will be blessed. You will be like a tree next to streams of water. You will be fruitful and prosper in all you do. You will flourish. But flourishing, biblical flourishing, almost never looks like what we expect it to be. It is flourishing by God's standards, 
One day, Jesus and his disciples, they, they passed by this guy, and somehow they knew his story, who had been born blind. So the disciples say, Teacher, was he born blind because of his sin or because of his parents' sin? Now, we wouldn't even be able to say something like that. We think that's very insensitive. But there's some fear. To their entire religious culture had read passages like this in Psalm 1. He prospers in all that he does. And they had taken it to mean that God rewards good people with prosperity and God punishes bad people with poverty and sickness. So if someone's blind from birth, somebody must have done something really bad. That's what they're thinking. Sincerely. And Jesus answers them, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And then Jesus heals the man, and it's this man that gives us the phrase we love to say, now that's just right, now that's just right. And Jesus, who I believe the Scripture makes a good case for being the most prosperous, flourishing human ever, Jesus himself will go on to be tortured and crucified and rejected and reviled. He models how flourishing looks in this world. See, in Romans 5, Paul says, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not disappoint us because the love of God has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit which has been given to us. When we meditate on what the written word of God teaches us about biblical character, especially as Jesus fleshes it out in the New Testament, we leave behind a more superficial reading of what it means to prosper in all that we do. You see, true flourishing is not about how much money you have or how healthy you are, healthy you are, or whether you've got power or fame. That's not those things are fleeting. And they're not that satisfying. Biblical flourishing, to truly prosper, to be truly blessed, is to experience God and His love for you and to become more like Jesus. And that rarely happens without suffering. You see, suffering is like a refiner's fire. This is a, somebody smelting ore. And God heats up some, this, the, the, the person um, refining this, the refiner, he heats up some silver or gold, and the impurities are burned off. And precious metal is all that's left. And when God refines us and changes our hearts, we experience, we experience true flourishing. We need the power of the Spirit to get us through that, and He never forsakes us even if we can't quench His fire. Verse 4. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is a picture of a threshing floor. It's kind of hard to see. In the ancient world, especially hard to see, um, in the ancient world, people would harvest their grains and then bring them to the threshing floor. And they might get run over. They might run them over with a wheel or something and crush them. And the grain was heavy. And the dry, left, lightweight leftovers, the husks and the stalks, were mostly in small bits. And they were called chaff. They were basically trash. And sometimes they'd throw them up in the air and the wind would blow away the chaff and the grain would fall back to the floor. That was one of the ways they separated the wheat from the chaff. What should be your takeaway message today from Psalm 1? One of the most famous psalms. 
to delight in God's word and develop the habit of meditating on it. And, and you'll need to figure out what will work for you, whether it's, it's you know, cards like I love to do or just a, on paper or an app on your phone that three or four times a day has a verse pop up for you to think about it a little bit. Um, listening to it over and over in your car. I am convinced that memorizing it will have the greatest impact, but I know that a lot of people, that's just not part of their background. And you can ask someone to be your buddy, and the two of you encourage each other. Well, I've been meditating on this or that, or today it went great. Someone that I love very dearly, I'm going to call her Celeste, grew up believing God's Word was true. She studied it, she participated in a small group and loved it, and then she went away to college and kind of abandoned God and did what most college students do. And I've known so many young people like this as a youth pastor. And now, later, this particular person started gradually kind of coming back to Jesus, but has no habit of meditating on God's Word, and so is dramatically influenced by the Council of the Wicked. And, mo- and much of her view about morality really is a reflection of our current culture, not a reflection of God's Word. There's a battle going on over your soul. We are in a post-truth society. And just like the serpent Eden, the devil wants you not to trust God or His Word. But if you will meditate on it, if you will delight in it, if you will put it into practice so that it is reinforced as you see that the principles actually work, you'll ask the Holy Spirit to use it to change you, then you will truly flourish. Biblical flourishing, not necessarily what you had in mind, but you will never regret it. You will know God, and you will become the one that 